Thank God it's Free Range. You are listening to Free Range Radio Friday with your host, Michael Elves. Pour yourself a beverage and turn up the volume because here on 101.5 UMFM, the weekend starts now.
101.5 UMFM. This is Thank God It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio. I'm Michael Elves and kicking things off for us tonight. New single from Super Duty Tough Work. That is First Strike, our first track of the night, but we got more for you. Uh, coming up on the show, Jeff Robson, host of Tell the Band to Go Home, marks his 20th anniversary uh, with a special show on Monday at the Park Theater. I spoke to him earlier this week about that show. Uh, and we're going to play an interview that I did with Margaret Sweatman about her book, The Gunsmith's Daughter. Uh, she's been part of the Winnipeg International Writers Festival, and I aired it. Unfortunately, it fell on holiday Monday on Thanksgiving, so uh, not sure how much uh, audience it got on Monday. So I'm uh, going to replay that interview because it's a great book and uh, encourage people to check it out. So that's coming up a little later. Before that, J.P. Ho will be performing at the park as part of the 20th anniversary of Tell the Band to Go Home. His album Botanicals is on the charts right now. Here's the track, Sometimes. See, I wanted what I couldn't so I got quite despondent No one knew how to unravel me And I told them I should give up And be thankful what's in my cup But all my plans to quit you disagreed And so Sometimes Things don't always work out on the first try But you might And I told them it's a long shot Just a pipe dream based on dumb love No guarantees, sweet return But I'm leaving in the morning Not sure I'm going with every cent that we ever earned, and so sometimes things don't always work out on the first try, but you might, and so sometimes things don't always work out on the first try. But you might. 
Well, you can hear him every Sunday here on UMFM, but uh, for a special occasion, he'll be at the Park Theatre doing a live version of Tell the Band to Go Home. Jeff Robson joins me on the show to talk about this event. How's it going, Jeff? It's uh, it's really good to join you. I thank you for having me. It's, it's, it's going all right. It's an exciting time. Yeah. Now, uh, this is the uh, the 20th. Is it, are we calling it birthday or anniversary? I don't know. What's the difference? I don't know. Is it, is it your is it your child or uh, is it are you, are you wedded to this show? I guess is the uh, that's that's an excellent question. Sometimes we don't get along, so maybe we're married. Yeah, maybe it's an anniversary. Although based on you know my own experience as a father, sometimes you don't necessarily get along, but you love them anyway too. So that's it, true it too. Could be a parental relationship as well. Uh, and, yeah, uh, yeah. And honestly, I I, I do kind of feel like. Uh, my life kind of started when the show started anyway. It, it really changed things for me. So a bit of both. Now, when you say it really changed things for you, what, what do you mean by that? Uh, uh, I mean, my, my show changed my life in just about every possible way. I, I honestly feel like I was a different person before. Um, having this avenue to share things that I'm excited about and I love this much and then having the feedback from people gave me so much confidence and really changed the way I feel about myself and the way I interact with other people. It's just been amazing for me. So when you first got involved, I mean, obviously you had to have some, some passion for the music, some interest in, in the broadcasting yeah. aspect of things. Has that just like only strengthened over times or have you learned something kind of about yourself through this, this two decades of, of broadcasting? um uh, all the above really i mean it's uh it's been such an amazing journey kind of getting comfortable with doing it and then feeling like i actually have a role in a community that i'm really um proud to be a part of uh just gave me a lot of confidence and gives the gives the show some meaning and purpose for me so you've assembled some of your your favorites uh for this show at the park theater on uh, on, on the 17th was it was it a tricky thing trying to kind of figure out? I mean, because you've played obviously a ton of people over over the the twenty years and yes, supported a lot of artists and 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 been there at kind of the the beginning for a lot of them. So, how did you for sure kind of put this bill together? Well, these are specifically people that I met early on in the show. So these people have been coming on my show for almost all of the 20 years. Mm. Um, and I met these people and got to know them specifically by having them on the show. So that was kind of the, the relationship through the show and the like longevity of it were kind of the deciding factors. Yeah. And like watching these particular people grow over 20 years and, and the things that they've done over those 20 years has been uh, remarkable for me. So I'm really proud to have been around and sort of seen that journey for them. And maybe I played a small part in it. Maybe I didn't, I don't know, but I feel like I've been along with them. So I feel like they're, they're kind of, and all their careers are roughly 20 years old as well. So it's kind of, I don't know, it seems to kind of fit. Works nicely. So the artists are yeah. JPO, Nikki Mehta and Carrie Latimer. Yeah. When it came time to ask them like to just hit them up on, on email or did you call them up or like, how did you kind of go about and what, what was the ask? Yeah, I, I don't phone people, but I've had this idea for a while. Um, I kind of did something similar in, uh, in 2009, actually. Um, Dom Lloyd had put something together at the West End as part of their grand reopening. And so we, we did one then, um, but I didn't have any say in who was playing. And I kind of 
I don't think that they expected the format that I kind of had. I don't think it was communicated as well. So I don't think it worked quite as well. I always wanted to try it again. Mm. So um, with the 20th anniversary coming up, I figured, well, you know, what better time than now? Um, So I kind of, yeah, so I had this idea and I approached um, all these people and um, they all said yes right away. Well, one of them was a little reluctant, but I'm, I'm glad it, uh, it worked out, but yeah. So it was, yeah, I, I basically pitched it as a live version of the show. So we're going to talk a little bit and then they're going to play some songs exactly like they would do if they came into the studio. Mm. So basically that was the, the thing that you didn't accomplish at that 2009 thing that you kind of wanted to, to aim for with this one. Yeah, I, the structure is very different, and I'm very specifically letting people know that I will be talking for a bit, and then they will be playing songs. Um, it was kind of it, it. I think people expected more of just us songwriters in the round, and that I, I didn't feel like that worked as well with me asking questions throughout the whole thing. But it was a neat experiment. But I feel like I, it's a bit better format. So. I mean, is it each just kind of individual performances or have you asked them to like collaborate on anything and do kind of like folk fest workshop style at all? Or what's, what kind of direction have you given them in terms of like material to perform, if any? Um, yeah, well, I don't know. I, I didn't want to, uh, uh, I, I kind of feel blessed that they'll show up at all. So whatever mm-hmm. they really want to do is, is kind of fine with me. So we're, we're kind of hammering out some of those details. I do have sort of some themes that I'm trying to get them to hit that I, I definitely want to try to encourage them to play songs that they don't play in the normal show. So if you go see JP Ho and his band, he's, he's got songs that he regularly does. I might get him to do some things that he doesn't normally do. Same thing with Carrie in uh, Leaf Rapids. They have a very obviously Leaf Rapids heavy set. I mm-hmm. want to hear some Nathan songs again. I want to hear some things that I don't hear regularly. So I'm kind of challenging them to do something different. Um, but ultimately what they want to do is kind of up to them. They're, they're the performers. They know how to put that list together. And in terms of like sort of structuring this show, I mean, obviously when you're on air, you have, you know, your eye on the clock and a sense of kind of like how things are going. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like confident in terms of trying to recreate that on stage or are you just kind of going to be <laughs> a little looser? How, how are you going to approach that? <laughs> That's an excellent question. Um, um, yeah, I, I kind of want to kind of limit the amount of talking and interaction and then just let them play. So uh, I kind of have a, yeah, a bit of a bit of a time, um, time format in my head, whether it works out to be that way. I don't know. It's kind of like the show. You know, I always have kind of an idea what we're going to do. If we end up having a really great conversation, maybe it goes longer. If we don't, maybe it goes shorter. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I've obviously seen you do the show live and you come in with a, a pile of music and then sometimes you pivot and say, oh, I'm going to play this yeah. after this yeah. and stuff. Exactly. Allowing yourself some of that that freedom, I guess, uh, is an important part of kind of the, the tell the band to go home vibe. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's very much like, I don't know, I, I don't feel like I'm good at very many things, but I feel like I'm good at interviewing people because, and mostly because I don't have a set of predetermined questions. I want to mm-hmm. have a conversation. So I pay attention to my guests and sometimes they want to talk a lot about one thing and sometimes they don't want to talk a lot. And I think that kind of is what I think I'm good at 
in doing interviews and hopefully that'll translate well to a live format as well. So are they going to be on stage all at once? Are you going to kind of bring them out one at a time and just have like one-on-one conversations? Or are you going to try to kind of draw them all into a like shared conversation? No, um, each performer is going to be on stage for roughly 45 minutes or something. We'll chat Mm. for 10, 15 minutes and then they'll play a, a solo set for half an hour or whatever it ends up being. Um, at the end, I kind of have a goal of kind of a little encore collaborative thing of some kind. But again, that I don't want to make them feel like they have to prepare something too special for this. So um, I haven't really given them a, an assignment like that, but I have suggested it. For sure. Yeah. Uh, so folks can get tickets in advance for $25 or they're 30 at the door. Uh, this is mm-hmm. on the 17th at the Park Theater. Uh, just tell the band to go home.com the best place for all the details and ticket info. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty quick and easy. It's right on the, uh, on the main page there. There's a copy of the poster and yeah. Uh, the park theater also has tickets. If you go to the park theater website, there's a link there as well. Sure. Now, normally when I do an interview, I get someone to pick a song uh, to, to close out the, the interview. I'm not going to make you pick one of the three artists. <laughs> I feel that like that'd be a little cruel to the other two. Yeah. How about you pick something outside of those three that you've been digging recently uh recently wow um just anything not not anything, specific yeah. to this yeah yeah something um, well i mean get something that would like normally be on your show let's say yeah um you know what i want to i'm head over heels in love with this songwriter named micah schnabel i don't know if you've ever heard of him or two cow garage um but he has this band called Two Cow Garage, and I saw him solo this summer, and it just uh, it blew me away. It changed me somehow. Um, so something from his uh, his recent work would be amazing. I think people it's, need to hear it. We'll play some Michael Schnabel. That's exciting, though, to hear that you said you know something you saw this summer changed you. You know, twenty years in, you're still yeah. hearing artists that are making you reexamine or, or surprise yes. you. Yes. And that's what I, that's why I do the show. Cause I, I find this stuff. I love it. And I'm like, I got to tell people about this. Right on. Well, folks can tune in to tell the band to go home, as we said, every Sunday afternoon, but uh, please uh, get your tickets and go uh, attend the 20th anniversary live recording at the park theater on the 17th. Uh, Jeff, thanks very much for taking some time out of your day to talk about it. Thank you. I really and appreciate it. Congratulations on 20 years. Thanks. It's uh, it's it amazes me that I haven't screwed it up yet. So (laughs) it's an accomplishment. There we go. Wonderful. Thank you. The cocaine dealer across the street makes more money than anyone else in the neighborhood. Think that says something about the state of things. Like maybe times are bad and you're feeling good. With fifty-three dollars in my bank account, if I ever get the opportunity to sell out, I'm gonna kiss it long. On the mouth. I've done the struggle so good, I've made it look like I was dancing While I was skinning on the side of your highways for hours at a time Funnin' for a miracle that would never, ever, ever, ever arrive well, I don't wanna be poor anymore, I don't wanna be poor I don't wanna be poor anymore, I don't wanna be poor
novel from Margaret Sweatman is The Gunsmith's Daughter. The titular character, Lilac, leaves her home in remote wilderness for Vietnam, and uh, it's quite the story. Happy to have Margaret on to talk about this latest book. Welcome to the show, Margaret. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, did the character come first, or did the idea for this journey for the character come first? What what kind of yeah. prompted things? Well, it was a journey story uh, beginning actually with Huckleberry Finn, hmm. um, the river. And so that led me to the Winnipeg River and then the Mekong Delta and the way that the Delta um, bifurcates and expands. And then Lilac, yes, Lilac Welsh and Huckleberry Finn and Lilac um, emerged through the journey, through the story and her relationship with the gunsmith, her father. So, I mean, it, it, did you, had you reread Huckleberry Finn and, and just it prompted yes. the notion of a, a river? That's well, yeah, I like quest 
narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think all my books, in a way, are uh, in a way. I guess all books are in a way. Right. And um, uh, and so I liked having her need to seek uh, the sources uh, of her wealth. Um, I grew up during that period of the war and was just starting university uh, in the 70s and living in Edmonton with some people who were the Americans who were dodging the draft. And so we were we would watch the war on TV. And so I think, in a way, the book is sort of my origins in the rock and roll draft-dodging culture of the 70s. So I also began to research the 60s and 70s. Um, and then, of course, it led to the kind of uh, the, the, the centrality of the Vietnam War, what it did to music and politics and youth culture um, and journalism and writing, because the writing is amazing around that war. Um, so one thing kind of blossoms into the next. You, you do cite uh, actual works from reportage and, and, you know, reflections on the Vietnam War. Like, once you had the idea in mind of, of this Mekong Delta story, did you then kind of start looking at the, the on-the-ground reporting from that era to like, mm-hmm. give you yeah. the, the flavor before you started kind of writing the story? Like, what was the process like there? Yes. I mean, the, the research is, the, you know, the, the existing research and writing that comes from that period um, I'm not particularly crazy about Michael Hess's work, but Philip Caputo, for example, wrote an unbelievably beautiful memoir of being in the war uh, called The Rumor of War. And books like that, and, and, and Hess, um, or rather Hare, Michael Hare, Dispatches, um, very stone journalism. Um, and also the women who were there uh, compiled a book uh, called War Torn, and they were in their early 20s and went there um, really it was a time of um, very radical feminism um, and kind of dangerous feminism. They suffered for it. Um, and then I went to Vietnam uh, after I'd done quite a lot of research and scouted out the locations for my novel, um, not really knowing what would happen there, but knowing, just taking photographs and, and trying to inhale the, the, the locations, the place and the atmosphere, and also the unbelievable, I would say, arrogance or delusion that the Americans had, uh, and knowing that they were crazy, I think they themselves knew it was crazy, to go in and think that they could defeat a, a national movement like the Viet Cong in, in that landscape. No matter what technology you had, you just look at the land and you know that this is insane. What they're doing is like trying to conquer another planet. So thinking or considering that, that arrogance, was that something that being there gave you that perspective or was it a combination of that and then the the readings that you did like yeah a little a bit of both and i think um it wasn't just the american i think you know i, I i'm interested in canadian politics and history and our participation in that war was uh hidden i think i mean i i grew up in a very wealthy country and a lot of the wealth did come from selling nickel and other products uh, to that war effort, and it was disguised. Um, and, you know, um, what, 150 um, people, uh, Canadians died over there, 147 or something like that, or were missing. Um, we did participate, and we got rich. 
our our economy thrived on that war. Uh, war is just so good for business, and so there's I've always been sort of troubled and amused and horrified by Canadian our, our hypocrisy, mm. <laughs> how pure we always always want to be. And so one another very important book for this book was Claire Calhoun's book, Why is Canada in Vietnam? Because she went as a, a truly a communist um, uh, nurse and was and met the horrors of that. And I actually included her in the novel mm-hmm. as she is, as she really was, um, because she gave us all permission to use her book. It was without copyright. That was her politics. And so she actually went and, and her, her, her records of of being there and what the Canadians were pretending to go and set up TB hospitals and and they just weren't even staffed and and she was the one who pointed out that what we were doing was collecting information for the CIA on the location of the Viet Cong. So you know we 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 were this holier than thou thing has always <laughs> um, prompted me in my writing in our relationship with the states. And so, therefore, Lilac's father is American. So I wanted that kind of, I don't know, I guess allegorical um, uh, quality to this relationship. That, that that parent-child relationship obviously, I mean, plays a, plays a big factor in Lilac's life. But like, was that necessary to kind of suggest the the American and Canadian? Because usually it's kind of considered like big brother, little brother kind of vibes, right? Like when we talk politics and stuff, that it's it's siblings rather than you know parental kind of lineage or, yeah. or kind of relationship it, it does change the dynamic but like was there a way a different way to kind of explore this this politics without making cal american or did you kind of ever consider anything other than her dad's american and this flavors everything well yeah because the um the weapon that cal uh invents was actually invented 10 years later by an American in Tennessee who's still alive, Ronnie Barrett. And it's this 50 caliber or shoulder rifle um, that has been used at, say, Christchurch and many, many other civilian shootings mm-hmm. because that industry needs civilian sales. Uh, the military doesn't make them rich enough. They need to sell them to guys at shopping centers. Um, and the NRA uh, politics of... of intersectional um, Christianity with with uh, very, very violent geopolitics. Um, and also he is a sociologist, and um, in the 60s he comes up from University of Michigan, which did send advisors um, in the early 60s to Vietnam, and he was one of them in my story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, we didn't, Canada didn't have any doctoral students. We didn't have any doctoral programs. Um, in the 60s, and he is a professor of sociology. So I also, early in the very early in the process, studied sociology, and brainwashing and coercion and manipulation in, in language, and it was very very coherent as we went into the Vietnam War period and and into the war itself, that a lot of it was of uh, the manipulation of public opinion and also the manipulation of people um, and minds. So one of the Cal is a psychological operations advisor in the '60s, and then and, and is fragged. And, and is fragged. They, they, there were a lot of deaths by frags, which is throwing a grenade at your own um, senior officer, because uh, there was so much hatred that was generated. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he's. It, I think it sort of died in the wool. I don't think of our relationship as a sibling relationship with the states. I think it's much more paternalistic and much more oppressive than that. Mm-hmm. So the 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 lilac character then. You you decide on this this parental role for the American, and and then obviously she's a you know of of mixed nationality. In terms of propelling her story, the inciting incident is a is a let's say a fan of her father's shows yeah. up on their shore, and before heading off to Vietnam, this kid is enlisted. She meets him, and and then he leaves, and she starts worrying about him, you know, for lack of a, a better term, and follows him in in a circuitous way did you consider how to like launch lilac into the action like what what the inciting incident would be and what was best way to propel her forward yeah he kind of yes he propels her he um provokes her into action um i made her 18 uh in order to kind of turn up the heat on how uh, vulnerable she is and therefore um, turn up the heat on her relationships with the people that she meets because they they accept her for what she is, but they also are terrified of having this girl. Um, the The other journalists that did go were still incredibly vulnerable, but they were at least 22. Um, she's really still a teenager. Uh, and I wanted her to kind of be this Bambi character going in there um, in order to uh, refresh the perspective and let her experience the horror more in with very a lot of vulnerability, and also still to feel like a daughter. Uh, she loves her father, um, despite everything, and um, it's very difficult to love uh, sort of a, I don't know, certain psychopathy in him, uh, extreme ambition and willfulness. Uh, it isn't really the money, it's power that he's after, and he and this invention scares the hell out of me, you know, such a powerful... The, the Barrett 50 is a really scary <laughs> weapon mm-hmm. um, to give to one person. They're, they're built with machine gun um, caliber. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think I found a way to... I wanted to zero down, narrow, and, and en- put all the energy into one focalizer who would be kind of a peeled eyeball, very vulnerable and passionate and engaged passionately with the characters around her. Um, so, and, and, and it's a coming-of-age uh, story, but, but it's, I mean, it's pretty, it's, 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 it's accelerated. You know? Yeah. It's a, it's a novel, it's a story. <laughs> yeah, it's propulsive in that respect. It, it's interesting you say, you know, you want a, a character who will engage with the world around her when she starts on an island that her father has built, right? That, like, she essentially is removed from everyone else by his, like, purposeful action. Yes, yes. I mean, it is kind of that, you know, Paul Thoreau, Mosquito Coast kind of character um, who wants uh, he wants his family to be that contradiction that they're supposed to be self-sufficient and they're totally dependent on him. Uh, so he's kind of that Prospero character mm-hmm. uh, um, dominating everybody. Um, and then, and yeah, so, yeah, he's a patriarch. He, he um, takes the window, you know, he's... I mean, I, it, 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 it's one of the people that inspired, helped me with understand him was a serial killer uh, that I read about in one of the final drafts that I was working on. I heard about him on the radio from his daughter's perspective, and that 
kind of gave me a little more courage to keep going with this bizarre um, character um, who is always accommodating whatever environment he's in. He dresses for it. So he, he can move from place to place. And therefore, too, she has to um, she has to come to terms with what her father is, and and just the way we have to come to terms with who we are and our relationship with the states and with the Canadian history and situation. So when you say you hear, hear an interview with the serial killer and it prompts you to revisit Cal, like what what does that entail? Like, do you have to kind of go back in and, and rewrite some of his lines or like some of what Lilac <laughs> describes seeing in him? It's more, I guess, organic than that. Um, when you're drafting, you often have to start on page one again um, and live it. So, you, so you're not sort of applying anything. You have to experience the book all over again. And gradually um, the characters become, they, they begin to heat up and, and, and generate more action um, in themselves and between characters. So you can't, yeah, you can't just sort of add anything. You have to go in from the roots and go under the book again and inhabit it again. It takes a long, takes a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. You, you talk about, you know, like adapting this, this notion that like he, he changes his, his appearance or his dress for the, the different environs or the parts. For me, it comes, at, it comes across as he's, he's very clinical, right? Like he's, a, he's an academic first. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that he's basically applies himself to some sort of problem that he's trying to solve, but it's always like an interior thing that like the action takes place a lot of the time for Cal within his head. Well, I don't know. He makes a fortune and he distributes his book, uh, book, a gun all over the world. He builds a, a, a very, very successful hunting rifle first, which is used all over the world and makes him rich. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's really participating in the world a lot, but he, his ambition is um, quite narcissistic, as ambition can be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's pretty worldly, and he's very, very smart. Um, and he does educate his daughter way beyond what a high school ordinarily would. She's homeschooled a lot just because they can't get into Kenora from Menaki area. Um, and, he's, and he's reading a lot of um, international uh, journalism, so he's he's not a you know he's not he's not exactly rustic. He's just extremely uh, skilled in independent living. Right. I think at one point you referred to you know Cal always looked at people like they were problems to solve. I think is one of the things you describe and you talk about you know kind of like that he claimed friends even though he didn't seem to have the capacity for friendship. That like it's yeah. His, his... Don't you know people like that? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. And and it's it's a uh, it's a fascinating thing. It's it's just part of the picture of like that kind of like clinical detachment, right? Like that he's like particularly as a sociologist, yes. trying to remove it... himself from the observational. I mean, yes. which we've all like determined is is a fallacy, right? Like that by being studied, subjects are altered. Yeah, and he was yeah, and he he did study brainwashing and coercion and methods of of manipulating uh, the masses. I mean, that's what sociologists did. One of the first people I talked to when I was beginning to understand Cal at the very, very beginning many years ago was Angus Reed, who's um, a Napoleon. family friend. And, and so he led me to some other sociology uh, texts from the 50s and 60s. Mm. And they were looking at 
massive movements and massive cognition. Uh, and it, it, so it's a major study, uh, and especially at the, at the beginning of that war. Uh, so, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating um, aspect of sociology. I think it, sociology now has probably become much more um, social work, kind of. But, but when it began, you look at what they were looking at, the leisure class and the warrior class, and it, and it was, um, and how they can interact and how the warrior class can manipulate the intellectual class. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's scary stuff. Right. <laughs> I want to pivot away from Cal for a second, even though it's called the gunsmith's daughter, and so he, he looms very large in the fact that, like, even even in the title he possesses, he, he's the possessive one. But Lilac, as a character, before she goes to Vietnam, she lands in Winnipeg and gets a job writing for the Winnipeg Tribune. And yeah. I, I guess in part because this is kind of what then affords her the opportunity to then go to Vietnam, you had to kind of figure out, like, how, how does she end up in Vietnam? Covering it as, as a young journalist is, is kind of your, your entry point. But, like, were there other ways to get her there, or was it this allowed you to talk about writing in some way? I'm not, I, I don't really like the metafictional. I didn't want this book to be self-conscious. It's not a postmodern um, novel. Um, and I felt a little bit uneasy about it being about writing. I didn't want it to be. But it also, because she was my focalizer, she was my camera eye, um, it helped that she was a writer. And, it, and, and I could practice seeing through her eyes to try and record the way she would. And what she would absorb from other, from her um, elders, um, uh, Larry Donovan's a, a Pulitzer Prize. Her, one of the characters in the book is a photojournalist, and he's training her very, very kindly and compassionately, and scared to death all the time, wanting her to go go home. Mm-hmm. This child is there, so he takes her on um, uh, to try and help her, but also to save her life. Um, so yes, I guess it's it, it it helped that she was a writer. Because she was my recording device, and she was my camera, uh, and but I don't, I didn't really want the book to be about writing, um, but yeah, yeah, she was, she's my character, so and she was really talented. I really admire her. I wish I had her courage. <laughs> do Do you bump up against what you have to write about her as a writer? Then, as a writer yourself, like does that create any friction or? You know, are you trying to tell some sort of truth about your own thoughts on writing? Because I'm thinking of a a, a spot at which, like, Lilac describes herself as a vampire who used the desperation and bravery of a young man to advance herself, a calculating parasite who watched, who absorbed nutrients from the bones of the living. Now, obviously, as a novelist, you're not telling, like, real people's stories, but I have to imagine you, you do seed your stories with real experiences, as you, you know, talked about pulling from, you know, the, the Nurse Claire's book and, and from real stories of Vietnam. Like, is, is well, there a I, worry I that really, that's something in the back of your really, head? No, no. I don't okay. feel like a vampire. <laughs> I think that a, a war journalist is, would, would suffer that concern. Um, when you're writing about cruelty, how do you write about cruelty? I mean, Susan Sontag writes about this. You know, what happens when you are writing about cruelty? And when I was reading the accounts um, at the back of the gunsmith's daughter, there is a list of books, and this book is called War Torn, and they're, they're memoirs of the young women who went. 
and they they suffered from that anxiety what what am i doing here what how am i watching suffering how do we watch and record suffering um but i mean i i'm not a a, a journalist of any kind and um certainly not a wartime journalist so i was i was writing about a character mm-hmm. and and imagining what how she would feel this young woman um and and the she was terrified by her own success i i, mean, I just I just imagine that that would be uh plausible so you know it's it's really creating a a fictional character I did love the uh, the eye-opening experience she has when she's sitting in a, a like a deli counter and reading and realizes, wait a second, real people write this and they live here. Yeah. That, that this isn't some far-off thing like reading the McLean's magazine or something. That the, it's the immediacy of it and the like potential that existed yeah. for her in that moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. She she's invigorated and she's freed and um, yeah, yeah. And she takes action. She gets her own agency. Um, she's got, she's got, she's really uh, got a lot of uh, jam. <laughs> I'm fond of her. Yeah. So, in terms of building the interiority of a character like Lilac, then you you said you specifically chose that she would be about eighteen, so that she's she's wide eyed, she's she's more innocent. You know that she has this relationship with her father, the the American, and like what else like do you map out or like start kind of like jotting down ideas of like her personality before you start writing her or do you discover her personality mm-hmm. as you start writing her action yes she comes from action uh i think that um uh it, it particularly novels uh or the way i approach novels you don't you 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 live the the situation and the character emerges from situation. I think that like right now I'm working a little bit at an adaptation uh, for television of one of my other novels. I don't know if it'll ever see the light of day, but I'm studying w- how television writing goes, and I think what you're suggesting works for that m- medium, mm-hmm. um, where you actually have to crack open and you're looking for. Um, uh, contradictions in characters and habits that will be that will identify that character on the screen in a forty minute or hour long or two and a half hour long section. That's I think more surgical. But with novels, I think you um, live the you live the characters and it's a lot more fun. I, I think um, that, that again you again it is always starting on page one when you discover something new. You have to start at page one to knit the the spider web all over again. Um, it's a very fragile kind of um, network. So the characters, they don't do character studies. I just, I, I think about them when I'm stuck at red lights and, or when I can't sleep. I try, but I, I don't necessarily think about them. I just invite them in <laughs> mm. and listen to them and um, hope they'll show up. So you place her in a situation like when she first goes to Vietnam and there's, you know, an attack and she's, you know, concussed in the in the bombing, and then she yeah. finds herself, you know, having a high high level interview that she sh- probably shouldn't merit at that point, and and then it's like, what would what would she do in these situations? And you suss out like who she is by how she's handling these things. Yeah, you you live in her body and see because you have to light a scene, and you have to uh, do your depth of field. You, you she's my camera. And so I set the lighting a lot first, and um, uh, and 
and then, then I want to know. I want to know that like, she's very hungry. She's she's got a very high metabolism, so I know that she's hungry and she's in pain, and she's scared to death. And then I go in there with her, and um, and have fun with her. Uh, it's uh, she's my guide. So you imagine it's just, it's like in a long hallucination. You, you just you you enter her dream and try to inhabit it. What does it feel like to fall off a bench because of a concussion, like a concussive force of a big bomb? What's it like to see a, a, a leg come to the surface of a river and then go down again? And, and what does it smell like? And, um, and you have to kind of be careful not to diminish your characters out of some sort of false modesty that, you know, ordinarily when we're talking about ourselves, we don't, we don't want to enhance our ego verbally. Um, and and you can't do that with characters either. You have to give them their full due, and let her really move around and and have a look. Um, so they and they show you stuff. Like I didn't know that she was going to walk in and see this sort of French washroom at this restaurant, um, but there it was. You know, uh, if you've you know, like you do the research and you sort of digest the research and let it live in you, and then you put it in her put the film in her mind and then go with her. So you dream it. So when you go through, uh, you know, a hallucination process like this, coming out the other side, do, do you wrestle with any kind of like PTSD from kind of <laughs> dealing no. with some of these things? Uh, I, well, I did after um, it was published, a friend of mine, Barb Shaw, a poet, we went to a shooting range. It was published and about a few weeks later, I felt compelled to go and shoot an assault rifle, um, and I was really traumatized shooting this gun. Mm. Uh, my body went crazy. I, I had to stop. Um, I just felt compelled to touch one, uh, but the book was already published. We launched it, and I can't remember. It was like it launched it in May, and we went in June to this shooting range, and um, and I handled the, the kind of gun that that. My soldier Gavin would have been handed. Um, it wasn't an M16, but it was an, another type of AR-style um, assault rifle, um, and uh, uh, you know, it just and, and brought all the kind of horror. I got so tired, frankly, researching this book of looking at these guns, mm. um, and then having to touch one and embrace it and put your cheek against it and pull the trigger and then endure the sound. Um, I went pale and I was just trembling. Um, and my friend, uh, she had a lot more gumption, and she she had to take over my cartridges and and shoot the rest of them. Uh, I couldn't stand it. So, but as far as but I, you know, I don't feel traumatized. I the the research, you know, the the horrors of the actual say the scenes in the hospitals in that in in the gunsmith's daughters. Uh, I I honor the researchers who gave that information to me and. And I wrote to one of them. She's a prof out east, and thanked her. and And she gave me permission to use her research. And we kind of shared our sadness over what we were reporting. Mm -hmm. But I don't feel, um, you know, I'm on to something else. You get on to something else. Sure enough. Yeah. Well, the book is out through Goose Lane Editions, The Gunsmith's Daughter. Margaret Sweatman, thanks very much for taking some time to talk about it. It's very nice to talk to you. Always. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thank you.
Here on Thank God It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio. You just heard a new single from Toronto artist Looney. That's First Thing Smokin'. Uh, my thanks to Margaret Sweatman and to Jeff Robson for joining me on the show. We're going to close off with a whole whack of great new tunes. Cootie Man's new album, Open, drops today on Seal. Uh, we're going to hear track A Day Off, which features some awesome organ work. 
Then from New Zealand, Maele Menzanza's new single, Therapy. We've got the JK group with Fine Strength. Uh, Maya Kiltron just dropped a new record out today called Persimmon. We're going to hear something from that. And then the Jack moves back after a little bit of an absence with a new album called Cruiserweight. We're going to hear Somebody's Watching You. Keep it locked here on 101.5 UMFM.
everyone can show the signs of stress and vibes affecting me. Do what you can to ease the pain that's deep inside of me. You can say what you see, it's just like therapy, all in vibes. Put up, put 
Oh 